If you have your copy of God's Word, open it to James chapter 4. Keep it open there. My name is Jim Stitzinger. Haven't had the privilege yet of meeting all of you, but it is a joy to be a part of this church and to see God's work continue to go throughout this city and throughout this world. And it's a thrill to watch how God transforms lives, isn't it? We get to see that firsthand. That's a supernatural miracle. Never let go of that. That when you get to see someone saved or you reflect on your own salvation, that's a supernatural act, a miracle we get to witness firsthand. This morning, we're in James chapter four, and last week, I told you we were going to solve the mystery of what is God's will for your life. Those of you who were here last week, I'm sure, spent the whole week trying to navigate that issue and Googling it and coming up with the answer. It's one of the strangest things for some people to figure out. They run around breaking out in all kind of a nervous sweat, trying to understand, what is God's will for my life? Who do I marry? What job do I take? Where should I move? What car do we buy? What time is the best time for a six-month-old to go to bed. I mean, all the things that just get so complicated. You can go to the Old Testament, and we can go that route and put out a fleece and see if it's still wet in the morning or dry in the morning, and maybe that's God's will, or go to the New Testament and cast lots and try to get an answer from God that way, as the disciples did in Acts 1. There are some who try the Bible drop method, where you have a decision to make, and you drop your Bible, and whatever breaks open to will... Well, that doesn't always work. (laughs) Some flip a coin. They try to find answers in dreams and hallucinations. Others go down the body function method of the liver shivers or the toe tingles or butterflies in your stomach. Remember the decoder ring you got in the Happy Meal box? How cool was that? You could sit there and figure out the code for life just by rotating that little thing. Of course, there are those who try to take a social media survey to figure out God's will and Others are just simply paralyzed. You're just in fear, thinking God's will is a tightrope, and if I make one wrong move, I'm going to fall off into oblivion. For others, God's will seems to be like a perpetual test. One wrong move, and I'm voted off of his island. There's others who really seem to have it figured out. I mean, look at Hebrews 11, for instance. Hebrews 11 is a fascinating chapter. Hebrews 11, you've got Abel who does God's will, verse 4. And what happened to him? He got killed. Next verse, you have Enoch. He did God's will. And what happened to him? He got taken to heaven in a chariot. A few verses later, you got Noah. He did God's will. And what happened? Everyone else got killed. I mean, you've got a lot of complicated things that go on when you do the will of God. Our life depends on knowing what he wants from us. Why why would he make it so hard to figure out? Is it really that hard to figure out? The answer is no, it's not. In fact, you've got to know, God doesn't play hide and go seek with his will. He doesn't bury it somewhere in some mysterious cavern that we've got to go and find. In fact, he sent the Holy Spirit to give us his will and he doesn't shroud it in mystery for us to try to find some spiritual Sherlock Holmes to figure it out. It's something he wants us to know. Colossians 1, 9, Paul prays that we'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We'd be filled with it. We would know his will. Psalm 119, almost the entire chapter, almost every single verse, I think there's only one that doesn't specifically say it. Almost every single verse is a statement of doing God's will. 
David in Psalm 143, verse 10 says, teach me and do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. There's David opening his heart and saying, God, you've given me your will. Just teach me how to do the steps of it. When Paul told us in Ephesians 6 that we would do the will of God from the heart, he obviously assumes that we know what his will is and we do it with a good attitude. Now, I want to say this at the start. When we say the will of God, there's really two types of will that we can talk about. One is God's will of decree. That's God doing what he wants to do and nothing we do is going to offset that. God willing creation into place. God willing that his son would come to earth and pay the penalty for our sin. God willing that the world will conclude in the way he says it will conclude. There's God's decreed will that's going to happen no matter what we do and we don't have to live in fear of offsetting that. That will's not going to change. That will is in place and we're not gonna mess it up. But the will of God we're talking about today could be described as God's will of desire, what he wants for us to do what he says for us to do. It's only a matter of, will we actually do that? Hopefully that definition keeps us on the same page when other verses jump to mind as we go through this morning. But as we look at James chapter four, we find that not everyone is so concerned about doing God's will. Not everyone is so focused on understanding what God wants us to do and living that way. Before we can go down the pathway of what we have to start doing, we have to look at what we must stop doing. And that takes us into our verses for this morning. James 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. This is a pretty exciting statement. People come along and they make those comments all the time. I found a way we're going to make the money. I mean, even yesterday, I was talking to a guy. Within three minutes of, of meeting him, He's telling me about the thousands of dollars he made on the stock market because of an inside tip he got, and boom, his whole portfolio just exploded. I'm thinking, wow, I mean, that's your identity. I mean, you're so thrilled about this. A friend called me a few weeks ago and told me about a $100 million company he's building, and we can get in on it early on and do this. I I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? I mean, that's exciting. But there's something wrong with some of these thoughts. Here's the issue. James says in verse 13 that there's a presumptive arrogance that creeps into our thinking, a pride that thinks our planning guarantees an outcome, a strategy that will prevail. There's a tremendous illustration of this over in Luke 12, and you can just listen to this. Luke 12, verse 16, Christ talks about the land of a rich man that was very productive, and he began to reason to himself. Now catch that, that's key, that's key. He's enjoying the wealth of the land. He's enjoying great growth and exponential income. But then he starts to reason to himself. He's excluded wisdom from outside. He's excluded wisdom from the word. And he's excluded God. And he says to himself, what shall I do? Since I have no place to store my crops. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. You see what he's doing? He's stepping back from any vertical dimension in his thinking and only thinking on a horizontal plane that leads with his joy and what makes him feel good. And so he's encased himself with his goods and his grain, built bigger barns and bigger storehouses. In verse 20 of Luke 12, 
God shows up. And God says this, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and not rich toward God. You plunge down a pathway, accumulating, stockpiling stuff, taking your eyes off of God, taking your eyes off of the creator, putting it on the creation, surrounding yourself, encasing yourself, and in this man's case, entombing himself. His sin wasn't in having wealth or barns full of grain and goods. Job had more than that. Job, the wealthiest man in the world at the time, Job, the man who had everything anyone could ever desire and is called a godly man. It's not the wealth. The man's sin in Luke 12 is a sin is ignoring God. That's the attitude that James is exposing, that God is drawn to light in our own hearts as you look at verse 13. It's the presumptuousness that we will have the results we want thinking that we are somehow autonomous from God's plan, that we can make a plan, set it in motion, and the results are what we expect them to be. We can do what we want, when we want, how we want. But it gets worse. Look down at verse 16. James says this, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This is the person who verbalizes it. This is the person who's the loudmouth. It's the person who brags about it. They broadcast their plans and the expected success. They're assuming tomorrow. They're assuming the work is there. They're assuming the success. It's the man acting like he's sovereign over the universe. This man's ignoring God, and in his will, he plunges himself towards whatever makes him feel good. Now, I said this a moment ago, but it's important to note that God never prohibits making money. He never prohibits a profitable business. Even the passage here, what James is condemning is not thinking carefully, building a strategy and carrying out a plan, a good business plan. He's not condemning moving to a new town for a job. He's not condemning making a wise investment or even having risk or the wealth. What James and what God is exposing is an attitude of the heart about all of this stuff. This is the arrogance, this is the boasting, this is the evil that drives a presumptuous, autonomous attitude. And sometimes we do this. As believers, sometimes we are guilty of that very thing. We make a plan and we raise everyone's expectations about what the results should be, and we set our hopes on that, we transfer our joy off of Christ onto the stuff, and we expect it to happen. And then if it looks like it's not, we start to manipulate and cover and deceive and lie in order to get that result because we're so attached to that result. At no point along the way do we stop and question, is this really God's will? At no point do we put our plans before God with an open hand, say, Lord, I submit them to you. I'm doing what Proverbs 16.9 says, that the mind of man plans his way and the Lord directs his steps. I'm making a plan, Lord, but... You direct the steps. Is this what you want me to do? Sometimes we go down that pathway because we have our focus so set on what we want and not on what God wants. But it gets worse. Look at verse 17. 
Verse 17 takes us to a whole nother category. If verse 16 is, I get my eyes off of Christ, I get distracted and I start to pursue something. Verse 17 says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. This is the person who knows the will of God. You know what to do and you choose to ignore it. Now, at this point, your mind is informed. You know what God wants you to do. There's no doubt. It is black and white on the page, book, chapter, and verse, backed up, stacked deep, and you won't do it. God's painstakingly specific in regard to the issues of obedience, and yet some Christians read those verses, memorize those verses, tell others those verses, sing those verses, and still won't obey. One preacher from many years ago compared it to an architect who designs a house, gives you the blueprints, you look at them and say, "Mm, maybe. And then you get the materials and you start pouring the concrete before you built the forms and you start putting boards together and doors and windows and you assemble this thing and you say, that's my house. It's awesome. It's the house of my dreams. And the inspector comes along and takes the blueprints and looks at the product and says, they don't match. You know why? Because the architect designed it to work one way. And when you look at the blueprints and you won't do it, you're gonna reap the, the chaos that comes. And then as believers, we sit there and say, Lord, why is it not working out? And the answer is whispered back to you because you didn't follow the plan. You didn't follow the plan. I mean, probably the best illustration of this in the Bible is Jonah. I mean, you remember the story of Jonah. Here's Jonah living his life, doing his thing. And God comes along and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. And Jonah says, no. If you're a parent, you know that word and you know the tone of that word. No. And what does he do? Jumps in a boat, sails off the other way. He takes off running as far as he can get from Nineveh. If Nineveh is this way, he's going that way at full speed in the boat, finally God disrupts the boat and God sends his own personal navy to pick Jonah up and deliver him right back to Nineveh. Swallowed by a fish and dropped off. You know, there's a few times when you know you've been corrected by God, but if you get spit out of a fish, you pretty much got the point. But that was Jonah. He knew the right thing to do and he refused to do it. That's sin. I love how simplistic and clear the Bible is. There's no masquerading it as a bad day or a wrong decision or, oops, a a goof. He's saying, it's sin. Let's call it what it is. Let's be open about this before God. You think about this in our own life. I said this to you last week, that God will never let his children sin successfully. He'll never let us sin successfully. He'll never let us go down a pathway of sin and have the desires we want because it's dishonor to him. He's gonna interrupt that. He's gonna break that. Just like he did with Jonah, just like he'll do with all of us. God's will is for us to obey. In fact, that's the first indicator of salvation is that there's a heart that wants to obey. You may not know everything to obey and that's gonna take a long time to learn everything to obey as we all grow deeper in Christ. But there's a heart that says, hey, I wanna do your will. I mean, that's the evidence of love. Christ says, if you love me, you'll do what? keep my commandments. You'll do my will. But then James gives us a very sobering statement. Look back at verse 14. He says this, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. We do not know. We have an idea. We have a plan. We have a hope. I've got a little calendar and reminders that pop up and tell me all my expectations for today and tomorrow. 
but only God knows how it's going to end. We simply do not know. And you know, that's okay. That's not a threat. I mean, that's actually a comfort because if you knew about it, what would you do about it? You'd worry about it, right? I mean, how reassuring are Christ's words in Matthew 6 where he says, the flowers don't worry about what to wear and the birds don't worry about what to eat. And isn't your value so much more than both of those? I mean, he says in Matthew 10, verse 29, that two sparrows are sold for a cent. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Some of you say, that's easy. So do not fear. You are more valuable than the sparrows. You're more valuable than the sparrows. The bird you see flopping around out there, sitting on your windowsill, making its little nest. And we all see that bird and you think nothing of it. And yet God says, I know that bird. I feed that bird. I take care of that bird, but I died for you. Now we get worried about tomorrow. It's important to remember that God gives us no grace for our imagination. God gives you no grace for your imagination. The trouble and the worry we imagine, there's no grace for that. There's only grace for what's real and grace for today. And God says he gives us more grace over and over again. Proverbs, 21, Proverbs 27 verse one says, you do not know what a day will bring forth. I don't know. James' point here is not to belittle us, not to say our life is irrelevant, but he says, you don't know. Look at the rest of verse 14. It says, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Your steam that's here and gone. We don't have time to waste. His point is don't get caught up in advancing your plan when there is a plan and a purpose of God for the universe, for you as a human, as a part of that plan, for you as one who he's given his life for. Hey, Moses said in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days. Teach us to think carefully about our days. I mean, he says in Psalm 90 that, that maybe given 70 or due to strength, maybe 80 years, we might have 80 years of strength. If you're in your 40s, I'm 41, you used to think, man, I hit the turn. You know, I'm half done. It's <laughs> a little scary. But you realize we don't have an hour to lose. At home, I have a, a jar of marbles. And in that jar, there is, a, is one marble for every Sunday until my daughters turn 18. And every single Sunday I go home and I reach in that jar, I pull out a marble and I throw it away because I need a visual reminder constantly that I don't have a week to lose to put my family in the way of truth. I don't have a moment to spare to not do the will of God knowing that the next generation depends upon it. And when James says, you're a vapor, you're only here for a little while and then you vanish away. He's saying, sober up. Sober up, get your eyes set back on Christ. Colossians 3, set your eyes on Christ, set your mind on Christ. Focus on the eternal things that have current day implications. I love how God words us. Something to stop doing, something we have to stop doing. That's all the presumptive nature of our sin and our desires that rage in us that want things now and want it our way. But then God turns the corner here and he tells us something to start doing. That's in verse 15 something we got to think. He says this, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. 
Notice he didn't say change the plan. He just says, change your heart and then go after the plan. You know, this little statement here, if the Lord wills, it's never used in the Old Testament. It's used in the New Testament only, and it's very interesting how it's used. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 4, 19, where he says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. We see him say that multiple times in regards to his travels, Acts 18, 21, 1 Corinthians 16, verse seven. I mean, this is something that, that the New Testament brings to light to say there is God's decreed will, but there is God's will of what, what does he want me to do in my individual day? And James says, what ought to be going through your heart and coming out of your lips is if the Lord wills. Now, please, this is not a slogan that we have to attach to every comment that we make. Your wife asks you, what are you gonna do today? Well, if the Lord wills, I'm going to get out of bed. And if the Lord wills, I'm gonna eat breakfast. And if the, no, it's not, the, it's not the kind of thing that we text back and forth as an addendum to every single statement of intention. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue of saying, your will be done. I have a plan, and as much as I understand my life lived out before you, I'm gonna do that plan, but I hold that plan with an open hand, and I put it before you, Lord. Another way of saying it is this, God's at the center of my plans. God's at the center of my plans. You know, there's a little test for if that's true or not, and it's the test of two intersecting lines. It's you when you wake up in the morning with your wonderful plan for the day, and you start marching this way with it, and all of a sudden you hit a collision point where God says, nope, we're going this way. And what's your response in that moment? In that moment, if anger erupts, you know that you're at the center of your plans. But in that moment of disruption and complete reversal, if you can in true calmness before God say, not my will, but your will be done, you're watching how God's changing your heart to hold your plans with an open hand. Christ modeled it in Matthew chapter 10, or Matthew chapter six, verse 10, when he taught us how to pray and he said, your will be done, your will be done. So the question comes up then, how do we keep God at the center of our plans? How do we do the will of the Father? What should we be asking of ourselves? What should be going through our mind so that we can stand before God and say, I'm doing your will? Well, let me give you six questions to ask. What should you ask? If we're gonna drop into this passage, James chapter four, and figure out how not only to say if the Lord wills, but to then be able to do what the Lord wills. How are we gonna get to that point? And I know I told you last week we were gonna solve this, so I'm excited that we get to walk through these questions together. So I'm gonna ask you to write them down. I'm gonna give you verses to back them up, mark those down, go back, study it later. Wish we could spend a lot more time on each one. But there are simply six questions that I think we can ask to figure out the Lord's will. Now, in true transparency, there's nothing original about anything I have to say. In fact, that's one of the joy of being a preacher is I don't have to come up with anything. God already wrote it down and smarter men already figured it out. I just get to deliver it to you. So here we go. First question is this, is am I saved? That's the starting point, am I saved? First Timothy 2, verse three and four, this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of him. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is, slow about, is not slow about his promises as someone counts slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's will to begin with starts with us saying, are we believers in Jesus Christ? 
Before I can know God's will for my actions, I have to know his will for my eternity. Everything starts with submitting my heart to Christ, asking his forgiveness for sin, turning my life over to him so that I'm no longer the one who's pretending and trying to be the authority. I say, God, you're the authority. I'm here to serve you. You made me. I've sinned against you. I need your forgiveness. What Christ did on the cross applies to me. I need to be made right with you. Forgive me of my sin. Take the guilt, take the, all the unworthiness, all the unrighteousness and the wickedness from me and replace it with your holiness. Could be that you struggle to find God's will because you haven't submitted your life to him in the first place. So nothing else after this is gonna make sense. Am I saved? Number two, am I spirit filled? Am I spirit filled? I love this one. Write down Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Paul says this, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, I don't wanna be foolish. I wanna know what the will of the Lord is. What is it, Paul? He says, do not get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Really simple, really clear, really clean. He's saying, do not be controlled by wine, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's the mental image of a wind that fills a sail. It moves you in a direction. You say, how do I do that? How do I be moved in a direction by the Holy Spirit? You wanna know? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's how you're filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you know you're filled with the Holy Spirit? When you can say and think the things that he wrote. The word of God, the Bible is what the Holy Spirit wrote. I mean, God tells us that. He tells us that the Holy Spirit wrote this. He wrote this. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Read what he wrote. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Dwell on it. Repeat it to one another. Come back and forth with it. It's his message. And being filled by him means that his words are in our mind. Both Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, both those passages that I just read to you, end with the same statement that in doing this, what will flow out of us are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. The outflow of being filled with the Spirit is that we sing. The outflow of being filled with the Spirit is that theology runs through us and we speak that and we celebrate that and we worship God with it. What erupts in praise and thanksgiving and worship is what we filled our minds with. So ask the question, will this put me in the way of truth? Will this put me in the way of truth? Will this weaken my resolve to study God's word? Will this activity, this thing I'm contemplating doing, is it in sync with one who's filled with the spirit? In our home, we often think about this phrase of being filled with the spirit and think of being in the way of truth. And I compare it sometimes to being in the way of a train. How do you get hit by a train? Well, it's not gonna happen in this room. In order to get hit by a train, you've got to be intentional about where the train goes. It's the same thing with truth. You've got to put yourself in the way of truth so that God's word runs right through your heart and you are sitting there, standing there, wherever you are, in the way of truth so that it pierces our souls, the word of God says it will do, and transform us. The question is, on a day-to-day -day basis, am I spirit-filled? Am I continually pouring God's word into my heart so that the Holy Spirit's words are running through me, racing through me? Ask yourself, will this weaken my resolve to study God's word? Will this increase my hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is this gonna help me hunger for God's word more? Or is this gonna substitute 
by hunger for God's word. It's just gonna distract from it. It's just gonna take away from it. Third question asked, will this help me grow closer to Christ? Will it help me grow closer to Christ? Will it sanctify me? Will this cause me to become more Christ-like? Will it expose me to any unnecessary temptation? 1 Peter 4, 2 says, live the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Live for the will of God, meaning live in a way that moves us closer to Christ, not only saved, not only filled with his word, but is this gonna move me closer to Christ? I'll give you a great illustration, a verse to mark down. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse three says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's pretty clear, right? This is the will of God, that we are sanctified, means set apart, that we are separated from our sin, that we move further and further and further away from the thing that cost Christ his life. But Paul finishes the verse by saying this, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. He goes right after that issue and says, you abstain from sexual immorality, not just the act itself, but the thoughts that lead to the words that leads to the action that you abstain from anything that takes us down the pathway of adultery. So many more sins that Paul could have highlighted that the spirit of God could have prompted, but he goes after that one issue, particularly in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse three. The question under this heading could be asked, will this bring me into bondage? Will this have a controlling influence over me? Will this take my will and bend it in a way that goes contrary to God's word? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. I'm not gonna have something introduced into my life and become subjected to it so that if I don't have it, I can't wake up. I can't grow. I can't study. I can't learn. I can't apply the fruit of the Spirit. He says, I'm not gonna have anything in my life that has control over me. Ask the question, what value does this add to my life? What value does this add to my life? 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. Not everything has spiritual value. What's the edification value of that action? What's the edification value of that thought pattern? What's the edification value of what you're thinking through doing? How will this help you grow closer to Christ? Ask the question, how is that going to help me be more like Jesus? Or turn the question around and say, how will this help the world see Jesus in me? How transparently is Christ living through me that this action might give exposure to the unbelieving world that they could see him in me? Paul was so concerned about this. He said this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I buffet my body and I make it my slave so that I will, after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He says, I maintain rigid self-control over my body so that my impulses, my heart's desires, my longings, my cravings don't leap into a sinful category later to be discovered. And when someone then hears me speak the gospel, they see it undermined by my life. Paul wants his example to be as powerful as the message. Mark down Hebrews 12, one. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run the race with endurance that is set before us. 
He says, lay aside the encumbrance. Lay aside the encumbrance. Uh, we have twin eighth grade daughters. So they just finished eighth grade. And you know, like most parents, when you've got a child that passes one of those lines, you want to give them something to celebrate, right? You give them you know, the big pizza party or ice cream. Maybe for girls, you give them a necklace. We're not normal. So we gave our kids a Spartan race. You know what those are? Those mud races where you run all the obstacle courses? That's what we did yesterday. So yesterday we officially finished eighth grade and we did this race. It was epic. But there are people that go into these races wearing full scuba gear. There are people that go into these races for various purposes, some great, some weird. They go into this wearing full suits or a wedding dress and they run the entire thing and wrapped up in all of this stuff. I mean, they'll carry spare tire. I've seen one guy carry a NASCAR tire for the entire experience. I think, why are you doing that? I mean, it's, it's a race and you're carrying a tire electively. Like you, you want to do that. Why? What the writer of Hebrews says is lay aside every encumbrance. If you're trying to run closer to Christ, why are you dragging all that junk with you? If the point of the exercise is to move closer to Christ, why are you so surrounding your life and saturating your life with all this unnecessary stuff? I mean, Paul told us of the soldier who doesn't get entangled in the affairs of everyday life because he has to keep his eyes downrange. He has to keep his focus on the target, on the enemy, so that he can fight effectively and not get distracted by everything else going on around him that doesn't have eternal consequences. The question there is, will this help me grow closer to Christ? Fourth, am I submitting to authority? Am I submitting to authority? This has both a civil and a spiritual category. Am I obeying the rules that I'm under? In the civil category, you've got 1 Peter 2, 13 and following. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Look, if you're under authority, you gotta obey it. Even if you think that homeowners association is the most ridiculous thing on the planet, you chose to live there and you're paying that bill. So either change it or submit to it. Same thing goes for our local government, for our national government. God puts us under authority. And if you think what we live under is difficult and unfair, go back to the people who had to read this, who were forcibly removed from their homes and spread around their world with nothing, no advocate, simply just to live where they were placed. There's also a spiritual element, and that's in Hebrews 13, 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. But listen to this line, as those who will give an account. The gravity of those words on the leadership of the church is crushing because when they stand before God, they have to give an account for how clearly and how well you understood this word. What you do with it is what you stand accountable for. They stand accountable for how they shepherd you towards Christ. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, he says, let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this will be unprofitable for you. He says, obey the will of God, obey his word, come under the authority. As much as they follow Christ, follow them to the extent that God's word reigns supreme in his church and God's word directs what we do, submit to it. Because ultimately it's not submitting to a, Human agency, it's submitting to God. Am I submitting to authority? Can I do this 
and be obedient to those placed over me. Scripture may allow you to do things at times that the authority you're under doesn't let you do. And in that case, you have to obey the authority that restricts you. Am I submitting to the authority? Fifth, am I avoiding suffering? Am I avoiding suffering? Yes, it's God's will for us to suffer. In fact, he says this in Philippians 1.29, for to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Am I doing something to avoid persecution? Am I considering a course of action to avoid a hard conversation? Am I considering a major movement of our family or myself simply to avoid difficulty? 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. If I do the will of God, sometimes it might mean I reap hard consequences. The results of those things can't be avoided. And I've got to walk through them and trust God to give me grace day by day, moment by moment, simply to do the will that he's placed in front of me. Am I avoiding suffering? And last, number six is this. Can I thank God for this? Is this something I can praise God for? 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything, what's it say? Give thanks. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The question that can be asked, will this glorify God? Does this go on my praise list? Is this something that I bring to our community group, bring to our church and say, praise God because we did this? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Does this bring glory to God? Does this make more of him and less of me? Does this make him more famous? Does this explain his message to more people? Does this help others see the love that he has for them in the way I show love for him and for you? Can I thank God for this? Those questions again are, am I saved? Am I spirit-filled? Will this grow me closer to Christ? Am I submitting to authority? Am I avoiding suffering? Can I thank God for this? Well, if those things have been checked off and you've worked through all those things, I've got some great news for you. You ready for this? You then say, well, you didn't answer my question. Who do I marry? What job do I take? Where do I live? You left me where you started me. You didn't tell me any answer. Here's the answer. You ready? If those questions are answered according to God's will, God's word, then do what you want. Really, I mean that. Do whatever you want to do. All of a sudden we get shocked and say, wait a minute, you just took your seatbelt off at 100 miles an hour and you're hanging out the window. That's dangerous. Like, no, it's not. It's not. Because if I'm saved and if I'm filled with the spirit and if I'm being sanctified, and if I'm submissive to God's word and to the authority structures he put me under, and if I'm willing to suffer, and if I'm giving thanks for all things, and all those things are true in my life, then God will plant his desires in your heart and cause those to grow and cause those to happen. Mark down Psalm 37, verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord. That means everything I just said. Delight yourself in the Lord. And the verse ends with saying, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's what will happen because he plants his desires in us and then gives us great freedom to do whatever we want when it, when it aligns with the things we just studied. God plants his desires in our heart and he causes them to grow because he never plants a desire in our heart that goes against himself. 
And when there is a desire in our heart that goes against himself, it gets stopped in the study of our motives. So who do you marry? Well, I married my wife. Her name is Skye. I married Skye. Why? Because I wanted to. Because I worked through all the things I had to study and figure out and identify in her life and my life. And I saw her and I thought, you know what? I got to either marry her or I got to move to the other side of the planet. That's who. Why? Because I want to. It's that simple. Why do we move to this city? Because we wanted to. After you work through all the criteria of God's word and all the things I asked you, do what you want to do. Why do we join this church? Because we studied and figured out and looked and examined everything we could according to God's word, prayed about it, and then said we want to join there because that's where we want to join. We want to be with you. We want to be part of that family of Christ. That means that if you're conforming to God's will in all those ways above, he puts desires in our heart and those desires reflect his will. The question is, will you do what honors God? You know, potentially the greatest, uh, not potentially, the greatest example of this is Christ. I mean, think about this. The Bible never tells us Jesus' will. The Bible only tells us, John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, all those questions are already answered because it's Jesus we're talking about. But he says, I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of the one who sent me. But fast forward to the life of Christ. Jump to the garden scene the night before Christ is executed. And there in agony, in fear, in crushing his soul, realizing what's about to happen as he's going to go to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, Jesus cries out, Luke twenty two forty two, 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I mean, you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if there's another way, God, let's do that. If there's another way for the wages for sin to be paid, if there's another way for, for your holy wrath to be satisfied, if there's another way for this whole thing to be carried out, let's do that. But there isn't. And so the verse concludes with saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus cried out that prayer and the answer he got back from heaven was nothing. Silence, not an explanation, not a rationale, not a comforting hug, not a word from the father that said, it's okay, son, hang in there. It's gonna be all right. No words of assurance, no words of, of affirmation that you're on the right track, just keep moving. When Christ cries that out, there's no answer. You say, why? It's because the answer was already given. He said it back earlier on in his ministry. I came to do his will, not my will. And that answer did not change. He came to do the will of the Father. And he, because he did the will of the Father, we are forgiven, right? We're forgiven. Let me encourage you just a, a small connection on this whole point. In those times of absolute despair, when you are on your face crying out to God, you're saying, God, just give me an answer. I'll take anything at this point. I mean, give me an answer. And you don't hear an answer. There's not an answer that comes. 
remember you're in good company because that was Christ in the garden. And we have Jesus Christ, as Romans 8.34 says, seated at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. When he says that he knows our weakness, he can understand our trials and tribulations. He knows how to be a great high priest because he can identify with, with frailty like we have. It's because he knows what it's like. He was there. But never forget that silence may be the answer. Silence because the answer is already given. And in that case, we go back to what he has already said for us to do. And in boldness, we make a decision and move forward. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lead on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. You reverse that, and you've got a subjective, manipulative world of chaos. And too many Christians live in the flesh, submerging their mind in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, trying to figure out a way to gain God's favor, have him satisfy their lusts, and you get it all backwards. You get your heart right in the right place and we watch how God changes things and makes our path clear. As I said earlier, it was Jesus that when he gathered his disciples after the garden or before the garden, had them in the upper room and he took the bread and he, he broke it and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that's shed for you, and he tells us that this is what's about to happen, that he's going to pay the wages of sin and pay the penalty for sin. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you know the freedom that we have because of him. You know the forgiveness that we have because of him. You know the hope that we have because of him. And so that's what we celebrate when we gather together. Maybe you're here and you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. In the honesty of your heart, you know that you do not belong to Christ. The Bible says this isn't for you. That instead of partaking of this, this is a time for you to consider giving your life to Christ, that today might be the day you know freedom from guilt and the forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternity. Let's pray.